You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. We don't think of the mace that stands next to the Speaker of the House as having any kind of real force. It's just a symbol, right? But at least one occasion, it had to be presented as a weapon in order to calm the members of the United States House of Representatives. So after Zachary Taylor's election in 1849, upon the conclusion of the Mexican War, there's a debate over what to do with the new territories. You're going to allow slavery in these areas, California, New Mexico, or not. In the election, the Democrats lead. So you have 112 Democrats in the House, 105 Whigs in the House, and 13 Free Soilers in the House. There's a lot of new members. 11 people put in a bid to run for speaker. Democrats split their votes. Whigs split their votes. Most of the Democrats are backing a guy, Hal Cobb of Georgia. Most of the Whigs are backing an anti-slavery candidate, Robert Winthrop. In the absence of a speaker, the clerk presides. And usually this is only for a matter of minutes. He ends up having to preside over the House for weeks he can't keep order. No one really listens to his authorities, constantly banging the gavel. At one time, a Virginian who's running for speaker is accused by another member, a member from New York, that he's a disunionist. The Virginian says, that is false. And the New Yorker says, you are a liar. The Virginian charges at him, swinging. Friends get in between the two House members, and initially they've got to calm down, except once the friends jump in, other members of the House from either side start jumping in, and there's an absolute melee. As the Sergeant of Arms said, had a bomb exploded in the House of Representatives, there could not have been more excitement. Members are struggling, screaming. And at this point, the sergeant-in-arms picks up the mace of the House of Representatives and puts himself square in the middle of the crowd. He doesn't swing. But this gesture from the sergeant-of-arms provokes some surprise. There's actually a few jeers, a few laughs, a few people are like, that mace has no authority in the House. But it generally calms the crowd down. There are 59 attempts, 59 ballots, to elect a speaker. There's never a majority. Finally, a member from Tennessee raises his hand and said, Look, we know we need a majority to elect a speaker. We don't have a majority. Let's do three more votes. And if we can't agree after three more votes, can we agree that the plurality will hold? 
and the members are tired at this point. Three more votes occur, and on the 63rd ballot, Hal Cobb of Georgia is picked as speaker. Well, as we round out the year here, let's do a hodgepodge of some uh, listener questions that I've gotten at the Facebook Fans of My History Can Beat Up Your Politics site and also at Quora.com. David Kenny writes on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics Facebook site, I was wondering, has the party in control of the House ever been so split that they were not able to get the needed majority to name a speaker? Okay, so if you look going back at speakers uh, from the current one, Boehner, Pelosi, Hastert, Gingrich, Foley, Wright, Tip O'Neill, Carl Albert, John McCormick, Sam Rayburn, Joseph Martin, Rayburn again, Joseph Martin, Rayburn again, Bankhead, Burns, Rainey, Garner, Longworth, Gillett, Champ Clark, Cannon, and Henderson. That takes you all the way to 1899, McKinley's presidency. And you have all the speakers of the House, I would say, elected as part of that normal process the party in power pick them all. There was no special coalitions or anything like that. Now, in 1910, progressive Republicans and regular Democrats were able to join forces and build a 191-vote coalition to reduce the power of the Republican Speaker Joe Cannon. He still remained as Speaker, but as he said in his own words, he was dead as a doornail. GOP would end up losing the House in that 1910 election. Joe Cannon would lose his own seat in 1912 and go from this really powerful speaker to losing really control of the House. And that coalition was temporary, though. There's another incident in 1855 where you have 133 ballots before they can pick a speaker. Now, this is in the time after the Kansas-Nebraska Act is passed, and you have an election where you've got the new Republican Party in its first run, there's 108 Republicans elected to the House. Now, some of these are called anti-Kansas-Nebraskans, and not everyone's using the Republican label yet. 43 Know-Nothings, or American Party, this is the anti-immigrant, anti-Catholic party, get in, and 83 Democrats. It takes them 133 ballots to pick a speaker during which time the clerk presides and they finally do, and a know-nothing candidate from Massachusetts, Nathaniel Banks, becomes Speaker. So, very rare that these type of coalitions that you're talking about happen. Usually, Speakers are elected, straight party votes, and that's kind of true of the 20th century and the 19th century. So I would expect a similar battle royale in the House at this time. There's a partisan tinge to Speaker votes. It would be a great disgrace for a group of people in a party to work with the other party in getting a speaker elected because the speaker has so much influence on what then goes on, who's on the rule committee, etc. So you have to remember that any kind of coalition, it would not just be for a single speaker vote. They'd have to stay together on each vote or else you're going to have an extremely weak speaker. So there's no going back. Joe Dweck writes, Bruce, I just saw a TV documentary about President Polk and his initiative to expand the nation. It seems to have been completely overlooked. Also, please clarify the criticism of Jackson's Indian campaign that was contemporary at the time. Okay, let's start with Polk. 
Uh, actually, with Polk, you're seeing a lot more focus on him as a president in the 2000s forward than you had in recent times. And that's partially because of one of my uh, podcast guests last year, Robert W. Mary. We had him on talking about McKinley. But previous to this, he had written a book about President Polk. And uh, that book really took off and it really defined a new appreciation for President Polk in terms of he set out, I'm going to expand the country, Oregon and Texas. Well, we already had Texas at the time of his election, but uh, Texas had already been annexed. We're going to expand Oregon and, and go west. And um, he certainly accomplished those goals. The reason why it's not just a clean presidential win or kind of like all Americans can get behind, I mean, sure, caused a lot of friction and tension in the country. So I think that's why uh, it's not always brought up. But certainly as a president, he was a very effective president. I also believe that his death, which happened a year after his presidency, didn't help matters in terms of uh, his legacy. You know, he wasn't there as a former president involved in things and of course he was a one-termer he didn't hand off to his party the Whigs won the election afterwards the next election and um, for all of those reasons I think there's just less attention generally 19th century presidents you know they don't get as much so for all those reasons you don't see it Okay, please clarify the criticism of Jackson's Indian campaign. I think this was on the episode about uh, take Trump, add history, rinse and repeat. We were talking about Andrew Jackson, and we were talking about how that's one of the controversial things that modern Americans view uh, Andrew Jackson is the Indian removal. And I, yeah, at that point, and I would reiterate it today, that uh, there was more current criticism of that Indian removal program than sometimes is suggested. Now, where it was popular, where um, the Indian removal was popular, say Tennessee, Georgia, the states that were directly in Indian territory. I think it's very important to understand, particularly if you take the Cherokee Nation of, of, of all of them, Um, This is a a nation that extends in Georgia, really the land that is now Atlanta, a lot of it, not uh, DeKalb County, but a lot of the area. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. West and upward uh, from Atlanta was part of this Cherokee Nation and going into Tennessee and some of Alabama as well. It was a large area. It consisted of farms. They had gradually... You know, after fighting with settlers, it gradually started to settle down, developed a nation. They had a constitution as of 1827. They had a written alphabet. They had a Supreme Court. They had a council government. There was infighting, a lot of politics, 
But the Cherokee Nation was a place where you'd find things like general stores and taverns and people dressed in, in suits. The two main leaders of the Cherokee Nation of different factions, the Ridge, that was how he was called, was one, and uh, John Ross, a uh, very literate and well-spoken representative who would go to Congress on behalf of the Cherokee Nation. Um, you would find people dressed in suits. There were people that married people who were non-Indians. Um, it's, you know, the ties go very deep. Um, it wasn't a, a wild place. Um, and, and you'll see that a lot if you're, we're, whenever we're discussing relationships between Indians and some of the early Americans we like to speak of, um, thinking of Thomas Jefferson in particular, he's somebody who's going to use alternatively Indians to refer to people like maybe his father Peter had met, who he might have visited when he was a kid, who had long been in with English settlements and very close by and traded and had relationships and that kind of thing. And then savages who were working with the British, he would use that word um, for bands that were uh, on the border. So he separated different groups of Indians. It wasn't just one opinion. Um, but when you get to 1829, 1830, and Andrew Jackson proposes an Indian removal bill, and Congress starts working on it, there is a tremendous amount of opposition manifested mostly in the form of evangelical reaction and petition campaigns, some from ladies, but also men. Um, many came to Congress. And one of the significant things about the petition campaign of 29 and 30 is that these women are writing letters and petitions that are going directly to Congress. In the past, it might have been necessary to seek out a mail to be kind of the in-between or to just write a petition only to your local government. They were going right to Congress. This was one of the first real national campaigns, and many of these same people are going to get involved in the abolitionist movement. You had petitions that came from the ladies of Huntington, Ohio, the inhabitants of Farmington, Maine, the ladies of Steubenville, Ohio, the ladies of Burlington, New Jersey. Jeremiah Everts, the secretary of the American Board of Commissions for Foreign Missionaries. This is an evangelical group that goes into the Indian Territory and trying to convert many of them called the removal bill something that would cause America to forfeit God's protection and blessing. Catherine E. Beecher, the Hartfield Female Seminary, leads this national campaign. They did keep some of the other people who were in charge of the petition campaign secret. That's how controversial it was that a, that a group of ladies would also would write letters directly to Congress and speak out in this way. As for the reaction in Congress, William Lumpkin of Georgia, congressman, said that Congress has been flooded with petitions signed by a million men, women, and children. Now, he was wrong. It was thousands, say, and many of these petitions are still in the National Archives. But it gives you an impression of the impact that this had on Congress because they hadn't received anything like this before. You had petitions from Batavia, Ohio, Chester County, Pennsylvania, Lewis, New York, Manson, Massachusetts, Virgil, New York, 
uh, men's petitions in Burlington, New Jersey, Chester County, County PA, Huntsburg, Ohio. Uh, one of the prominent speakers against Indian removal is, uh, oh, and then within Congress, you know, Jackson's bill passes 102 to 97. So not only are Whigs united against this bill, but there are a number of Democrats who defect. Most prominent among it, among them, and famous among them, of course, would be the frontiersman and congressman David Crockett of Tennessee. This is the only Tennessee congressman who votes against it. Of course, it's not popular, his vote in his home district, but it was something that he was always proud of for the short remainder of his life. Um... I condemned the course pursued to the Southern Indians I love in order to sustain the honor of my country. And I will... And I will do it, whether I live in or out of Congress. That's what he writes to a a constituent that asked him about his stand against Indian removal. And, you know, it's also important, I think, when we talk about who's opposed to this, to also uh, note that this was vociferously opposed, of course, by the members of the Cherokee Nation themselves, and particularly John Ross, uh, who never uh, signed, uh, yeah, who, who, who opposed it and mobilized Cherokees within the nation to resist it. You know, they're not going to be fully moved out until 38. So it's going to take some time, treaties, there's negotiations. There's one group led by the rigid splits off and says, let's cut our losses and, and negotiates. And they're going to be persecuted by the other faction when they get to Oklahoma. It also should be said that, you know, it is a sad story. And about a quarter of the people who got on the Trail of Tears and went from the, the lands in the various Indian lands in uh, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi. Um, about a quarter of them died on that voyage. John Ross's wife dies. It's uh, so that part's sad, but there's a tendency to just then say that history ended. And so they were in Oklahoma and certainly it wasn't as good for them as where they had been. Uh, the, the, the farmland, it wasn't as good but life doesn't end there in fact the cherokees um really play a big part in um the uh, in the civil war um mostly on the confederate side which is strange because it was the people that will join the confederacy particularly those in georgia that were pushing them the hardest to get out. But um, many of them joined the Confederacy thinking that if they're able to disrupt the United States, they might have their own full nation again, or they could cut a deal with the Confederacy easier than others. And many uh, Cherokee fought with the Confederate Army. And a, and a few, like John Ross's sons, fought with the Union. Now, It should be, you know, Jackson's, Jackson was always saying that the reason he was doing this is because the states are going to treat these people worse. They're going to push them out. And at least if you do it the federal way, it will be under the U.S. Army protection. That didn't really, 
come to fruition. And it was kind of an argument of, uh, well, instead of protecting your civil rights or, well, it's not civil rights, instead of protecting your agreement that was made between the United States and this nation, if you don't sign this new treaty, if you don't move, we're going to subject you to the state power and not protect you. Mark Davenport writes, has any other president suggested he would veto a state petition if it passed both houses with the simple majority needed? No statehood petition that has made it to vote has failed to pass. Were there any that were contentious and rocky? Um, yeah, well, I mean, of course there was California, right? Uh, 1850, which had to be approved in the compromise of 1850. But there, Zachary Taylor was a supporter. I think, oh, you know, most presidents support new states. That's generally been the history. Um, there are bumps on the road, though. For instance, during the 50s, when Alaska and Hawaii was being considered as a candidate, Eisenhower had supported the proposal for Alaska. But as president, he started just pushing Hawaii solely, and he demurred on Alaska. Now, this is not the same as a veto threat. That didn't happen. And what happened is, but, but it was, it is true to say that some in Congress felt that they had to put both states, Alaska and Hawaii, on the same bill, a joint bill, because they were worried that Eisenhower might veto Alaska. Also with Hawaii, Truman ends up vetoing a, um, statehood proposal. It's not, uh, it, it, it comes in the form of an immigration bill. So, because he's concerned that there's too many restrictions on it, that there's a lot of restrictions on the Hawaiians, that anyone that might be a subversive or a communist, you know, will lose their citizenship and things like that. So he ends up vetoing. But again, it's not because he's against the admission of Hawaii as a state. Grover Cleveland pocket vetoes. That means he allowed a bill to expire while Congress was in recess, a bill for Washington statehood. And... You know, very narrow and technical reasons. And it's very similar with Taft. He vetoes an Arizona and New Mexico statehood bill for some narrow technical reasons involving some things involving their state constitutions. But essentially, in both cases, in Cleveland's case and Taft's case, they come around during their presidency. And Cleveland's going to end up approving Washington statehood as well as uh as well as Montana and um, improving Washington statehood. So, I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. 
Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. You know, in the case of Missouri, a very contentious debate was Missouri, which also brought in Maine as a state in 1820. You have the Monroe signs that bill. I think generally presidents are looking big, looking towards the future like a statehood. You have to understand, though, it's a very different issue um, in that we haven't had this statehood issue. We haven't had new states. So the last bill, that's the last one, 1959, right? So it hasn't come up. Usually, the one of the reasons the Alaska and Hawaii thing, you, you know, very often they come in groups. And it's because there is going to be people looking at whether it's right or wrong, that balance of power in D.C. and who we're going to give two senators to. Okay. This is an interesting question because I think the way it's being phrased, this is a question on Quora, and by the person who wrote it, is from the point of view of a conservative. A while ago, I read a bio of FDR. In the book, he said that FDR was adamant about people working if they were getting government handouts. Is it true that FDR was passionate about requiring some form of work from people who received money from the government? The fact is, the question asker is is right. You know, the answer is yes. But the reasoning behind it is probably different from what they would want to impart from the answer. Let me explain. It is true to say that not only Franklin Roosevelt, but his main administrator, Harry Hopkins, this is the guy that he delegated most of the aid work to, the WPA, the CWA, the relief programs, they all felt that dignity required work. The programs, CWA, WPA, their major components of the New Deal both involved relief money with some amount of work. Not only did Hopkins, and including FDR, feel that it would be better for the recipient, they figured that the larger society would benefit from the work so that you'd have bridges constructed, you'd have parks Uh, cleaned out, trees cut down, in some cases, plays put on and books and novels written. There are many areas of the country where work performed in the 1930s still stands. The idea of work rather than relief was aligned with cultural norms at the time. There were some unemployed at that time who would not receive a handout. They wouldn't take it. No. Be careful with insisting on this as a hard line. In other words, the New Deal didn't give any money unless the person did work in bet- as, as well. It's not true to say that they insisted on it. They had programs that involved work, and that was the goal, and they ran into a few problems, which I'll discuss in a bit. But they also had programs that involved direct relief, and an awful lot of money was spent on direct relief. There are a couple issues that they ran up against with WPA and the other work programs. And one is that they did not want to compete with private industry as it was developing. So in for one thing, no construction work. You know, housing construction, building construction for private buildings, apartment buildings and the like, that had to be 
private industry. Otherwise, you felt they would be in competition with the government. And that's something that you hear now anytime there's a government program enacted, and it's sort of presented like they didn't think about that in the 1930s. They absolutely did. They're very concerned with competing. So all of the WPA and the, the, the smaller PWA programs were public buildings, roads, parks, schools, bridges. They very sheepishly got into the textile business, mostly for uniforms, for public servants, and for those who absolutely, you know, the needy that absolutely needed clothing. So they did hire a number of women to do in the garment industry. But that was a pro, an area of the program where they kept a careful eye on it and reduced the program as time went on so as not to stop the textile industry from getting back. There's a couple things to note here. One is, there was a little bit of the culture of that time. People lived, uh, in, in a lot of cases, people were concentrated. Either, you know, there was a the, the population of New York City held a great population, a great percentage of the American people. And so the, the population was centered around certain urban areas. You didn't have things like suburbs where people were far from the dense city centers. It's a little harder to do these type of work programs today. For one, skills are so specialized. And another is that, another reason is that there are only so many people who can do the type of manual labor that you might have done back in the 1930s that a government public service would require. So construction, working on roads, I mean, there was a few side jobs. It'd be a lot harder to do that today. People don't simply do not possess the manual skills that your average person in the 1930s did. There's some simple work that still can be done manually. Some have been, has been replaced by machines. So instead of sweeping a street, you have street cleaners and things like this. You know, it's just more effective. We live in very distant areas from each other, so it's hard to get to the area where the work would be. If anything, you know, employment has made advances in people being able to apply through the telephone or through any number of centers instead of having to go to one place in all cases, in all states. We see these as advancements. So the other thing to consider is that the Great Depression involved a good number of able-bodied men being unemployed at one time. So when we're talking about FDR requiring work and Harry Hopkins requiring work, those are the people they're thinking of. They're not thinking about, for instance, mothers with children. Although there were some WPA programs, as we mentioned, for women. So to, to apply that now and to say that, oh, there shouldn't be a work program for those who have children, I mean, that wouldn't be in the keeping in the spirit of the Roosevelt administration as the question asker would like. It's a great one. A, uh, I'm very proud when I hear that a history teacher or a history professor is listening. And so history teacher named Jay Dumont asks me, if the events leading to the American Revolution, i.e. the Boston Massacre, Boston Tea Party, happened in a 21st century setting, what would rioters and picketers' signs say? What I'm getting at in this question is, would the colonists have blamed the king, the parliament, or the home country as a collective? And would the home country have been known as England, Britain, or something else at the time? For background, I'm a middle school U.S. 
history teacher, and my kids are working on a creative writing project in which they give a first-person account of events. Well, here's the thing. If you picture a 21st century crowd and there's these people with Guy Fawkes faces on, I think uh, next, I think in their hands you're going to see the following type of signs. All of these could have been seen back then. You don't do signs for a very simple reason. There's no photographs, nor are there TV cameras. <laughs> Here's what the signs might say. American rights before British greed. Parliament doesn't speak for me. North, Lord North, go to heck. Well, I wouldn't say heck. My country is Virginia. Hands off our ships. No murder act in this country. Connecticut won't pay for London's lards. Don't buy British. Kiss your local Sons of Liberty member. Maryland garments a rule. Soldiers taking our jobs, no. Drink coffee, good patriot. Long live the association. Parliament was the one deserving most of the citizens' particular ire, and the Guy Fawkes face would have been all over Parliament at the key problem. Lord North was seen as a, a tyrant, kind of being too close to the king, kind of trading the democratic government for favoritism from the monarch. He would have been an effigy target. Expect a sign about Washington and others called the Murder Act, the ability of British government to try colonials anywhere, including England or at sea. This was seen as the height of tyranny. Now, on the other hand, there are some people in Great Britain who would have earned some points from the colonists who were protesting. British Whigs like Edmund Burke or the Marquis of Rockingham, who supported American Parliament. They would have gotten thousands of likes on Facebook. In terms of terminology... Yes, people were using the term American to describe British America in colonial times, and American rights was the cry of the lead-up to revolution. Before there was a real movement that this thing might come to arms, it was about American rights and about boycotting British goods. And they would have used the term Britain because the Union had occurred, Scotland and England. Each colony had a different relationship, so it gets different with every state. So you look at Pennsylvania, that's a very strong charter where King Charles gave to William Penn, you know, an absolute right to run that colony and made it almost independent. Massachusetts, Connecticut, Rhode Island, they were operating already and by the time you get to 1775 with very little concern for British authority. And throughout their history, the New England region had been the first to kind of shake off the British role, you know, during the English Civil War, Connecticut sent a boat, like a hundred fighters back to England to go fight the king. New York, New Jersey, Delaware, they had a little bit more loyalist feeling. Boycotting of goods, more than just tea, would have played a big role in any signage or protest. And there was a bit of a preference for coffee. Not only was it taking off at the same time as a beverage, but it did have that little hint of American patriotism. Sam Adams and many other patriot planners in Philadelphia would drink mugs of the heavy, muddy stuff while planning. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. And if you like the program, please tell someone about it. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. 
Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers, and have a safe tomorrow.